Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Richard Blackett, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Welsh champion Richard Plackett about returning to the game after a successful career as a hedge fund manager, the pleasure and challenge of difficult hands, and the importance of killing off your emotions. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? Hi, Catherine. I am well. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Had a busy week doing some research. Last episode with Nirvana Senior, one of our letter writers, Lou from New Jersey, had made a comment about how much he enjoys our kibitz sessions, which is very nice. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Lou. Yes. Again. (laughs) Again. Again. But he also said it would be interesting to learn how a Yiddish word became part of bridge parlance. And I said at the time that I would look into it, and I have looked into it. Of course you have. So I am reporting (laughs) back. (laughs) So what did, I'm sure, your scorched earth research uncover? Well, you got that part right. (laughs) (laughs) Extensive, comprehensive research. Yes. Leave no stone unturned. No, that's right. Or at least, you know, no letter on my keypad when typing Google. (laughs) (laughs) I reached out to Mr. Ben Zimmer, who is a linguist and lexicographer and you know, he's got a CV as long as your arm. He has also written expressly on this topic 
He says that the earliest use that he's found of, of the word in English is in 1910 in relation to the card games Scat and Pinochle. In an article in the New York Tribune, I'll just read you the one paragraph at a beer saloon on the east side, which has a clubroom annex where Scat and Pinochle are the chief attractions, but where visitors who are not satisfied with playing the silent part of kibbutz discuss intricate problems in science, religion, politics, and statecraft. Anyway, the article goes on, but the thing is, um, Ben does this whole analysis of it. He's written an article about it, which is on vocabulary.com, and he's also talked about it on a podcast called Spectacular Vernacular. (laughs) (laughs) But I know that you've since gone and listened to the podcast episode where he's talking about it, and he talks about particular categories of kibitz, or am I right? Right. So this is apparently attributable to Eli Culbertson. There were three categories of onlookers at Bridge. There are the kibitzers who have received permission to chit-chat with the players. There are the dorbitzers who only have permission to chat with the kibitzers, but not with the players. And then there are their sitzers, and they only have permission to sit and they have no permission to chat with anyone. So it appears today the usage of kibitz and bridge is that we can just be the sitzers. <laughs> we can't chat. We have to be silent when we're kibitzing, but we can be chatty kibitzers on Sorry Partner Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll put a link to the article and to the podcast and to Ben's web page in our show notes and on Instagram. And so if people are interested, they can have a bit more of a look and a little more of a deep dive into the world of Ben Zimmer and the world of kibitz in relation to card games, where he thinks essentially it moved into bridge parlance from the sort of more general usage in card contexts. I'm so glad now I understand how it, and it makes sense, how you went from kibitzer for chatting to kibitzer for onlooking at bridge. Very cool. Thank you for doing that. And thank you to Ben Zimmer. Thank you to Ben and thank you to Lou for asking the question. As you know, we have all been thinking about ways to encourage more people to play bridge. So we thought, why not share our success stories and inspire each other's successes? Have you taught someone to play bridge? Or have you facilitated someone taking lessons? Or have you encouraged someone to come back to the game after a hiatus? If you have, we'd love to hear about it. Write to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com with the subject line, the more the merrier. And you never know, we might put your story on the show. And now back to the show. So, Jocelyn, a bursting mailbag this week. Would you like me to read you some letters? Oh, yes. Goody, goody. (laughs) Our first letter is from Kim in Melbourne, Australia, and she writes to us about a recent congress or tournament. One of our opponents advised us that she was visually impaired and asked us to use big markers and a large bidding pad because they write the bids down so that she could see the bids that were being made. That was all fine, and as the round progressed, we had an auction that went, passed by my partner, passed by my right-hand opponent, one spade by me, double by the visually impaired lady, 
pass by my partner, two hearts by my right-hand opponent, and four hearts by the lady. As Dummy came down, she realized that one of her hearts was a diamond and she only had two hearts in her 20 count, so four hearts was three off. As she picked up her next hand, she said, I will have to make sure I sort my cards and double check. (laughs) So the auction on the next board with us passing throughout went one heart by the lady, two diamonds by her partner, two spades by the lady, three no trump by her partner, all passed. My partner led and we all played to the first trick, at which point I noticed that one of the lady's clubs was a spade. I said, excuse me, but the four of spades is masquerading as a club in dummy. (laughs) (laughs) We all had a good laugh about it. Best wishes, Kim. Yeah. No, I mean, it definitely is a hazard of playing face to face. Oh, yeah. Which never happens when you're playing online. No, no, that's true. Oh, gosh, the poor lady. Well, I'm glad you were so nice about it, Kim, as you would be. No doubt. Nevertheless. (laughs) Our next letter is from Peter in Massachusetts, who's written to us before about his fascinating upbringing in the bridge community and his parents from the Costa del Sol. Oh, yes. So Peter writes to us, The Scene, a two-session regional pairs event. It was on a Saturday in Mobile, Alabama, 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. Approximately half of the field would qualify for the finals, and the rest got to play in a consolation game. Mm. Mm. My partner and I didn't want to lose nourishment time waiting for the first session's results, so we trundled off to get something to eat. Normal tropical summer weather meant unrelenting afternoon torrential downpours, so we waited impatiently in the car outside the Pizza Hut, or whatever it was, for what seemed like ages. Finally, my partner gave up and took off for the door. I waited a few more minutes, but I too gave up and bolted for cover. Running pell-mell to the door, went to shove it open with my left hand, only to find it was a pull and not a push. It didn't budge, and my momentum did the rest. My body pivoted, my right arm continued on in its journey and actually shattered the door. Oh, my God. Yes. There was no safety glass in those days. Dead silence, shards everywhere. I made my way through the empty frame and into the restaurant. Management were nice enough to call for an ambulance. (laughs) Fifteen minutes later, the medics showed up only to let me know that I wasn't an emergency case and if I wanted them to take me to the hospital, it would cost $200. I declined their offer and simply tossed the car keys to my partner who drove me to the local emergency room. No stitches but lots of white bandages up my forearm and a band-aid on the bridge of my nose. Hungry. Oh, still they didn't have the pizza. (laughs) No. So hungry, we still made it back in time for the second session, only to find that we had not made the cut. As luck would have it, we were assigned a north-south for the evening session. A succession of opponents took one look at me and wanted to know (laughs) what had happened. And every time I would deadpan and say, as you can see, we didn't make the cut, so my partner took me outside. <laughs> 44 years later, and I still have faint scars. Oh. Well, what's the moral of that story, Jocelyn? Always pack your own sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. And that they were hungry to boot. I know. After all that. Oh, yeah. my goodness. It's really too bad they didn't have you for a partner because you always pack 
beautiful sandwich for us. (laughs) Next time, Peter, next time. (laughs) That is hilarious. Horrible, but hilarious. Yeah. Speaking of sandwiches, Jocelyn, it does remind me of our time together in Phoenix, which is (laughs) apropos because our next letter is from Frank, who we met in Phoenix. And this is Frank's mailman story. Hmm. I recently played at a sectional Swiss team with three strangers recruited by the partnership desk. With good fortune, we won our first match. While the four of us waited for our new table assignment, I asked our senior team member, a feisty octogenarian, how she got into bridge. She said her mailman helped get her started into duplicate. Her mailman? That's funny, I said, because I stopped playing bridge for a couple of years and my postman also got me back into the game. I was still receiving the bridge bulletin in the mail and he scribbled a note on the back of the cover inviting me to their Thursday evening duplicate. That was in 1977 and I was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Great Falls, Montana. And yes, though our association to Great Falls was decades apart, my teammate and I had both had the same postal carrier. Oh my God. Yes, it's Mr. George Williamson who was the director at the Big Sky Bridge Club. Um, And then he says in this game you form so many connections with people. And unfortunately, George is no longer with us, but Frank has posted his obit, which we'll put in our Instagram. But Frank also says that he bets if we were to poll bridge players from Montana, most of them would have a story about George Williamson. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? It's wonderful. And what a fabulous ambassador for the game. I love that. Oh, that's great. And the connection. Yeah, you know, if you did also have a connection to George, let us know. We'd love to hear about that. Now, last letter today, Jocelyn, is from Anna in New Zealand. Anna says, My 80-year-old mother was late to a daytime bridge game at the local club with her 82-year-old husband. She was taking a few risks to ensure they were seated at the table at the requisite time and chanced one orange traffic light and then another and was dismayed when the sirens sounded with a good 400 metres still left to go before they reached the club. Nevertheless, she carried on driving for another 350 metres with the police car in hot pursuit before starting (laughs) to pull over with instructions to her husband, when I stop, get out, run and get us a table. It took some convincing to persuade the police officer that they were in fact just bridge players and not hardened criminals trying to evade the police. <laughs> and most importantly, Hank, her husband, was able to secure a oh. table for their afternoon session. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> wow. The moral of the story is what people won't do for bridge. You've got, you know, walking through the glass door. You've got the postman going all out to recruit people back to the club. And now you're evading the police. Hilarious. So funny. So if you have any fun stories about what you wouldn't do for Bridge, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. These links are in the show notes. And on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Richard Plackett. 
Welsh champion Richard Plackett began playing bridge at the age of 12. He was a member of the Cambridge University team from 1982 to 1985, a member of the British Junior Squad and British Junior Teams from 1983 to 1987, and he won the Bridge Great Britain Gold Cup in 1988. He has represented Wales several times at the European Championships and is a part of Team Orca, competing in transnational events. In 2022, he placed second in the English Bridge Union Player of the Year Championship, when the UK's premier pairs tournament, the Eastbourne Swiss Pairs, came second in the EBU Spring Foursomes and was a semi-finalist in the Bridge Great Britain Gold Cup. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. Yeah, I think our, our most interesting hand uh, uh, of late was, was a hand for my team where we made slam in both tables, which I don't think's ever happened before. <laughs> I was actually playing with my friend Andrew Robson because uh, his regular partner couldn't make that match. I've known Andrew for a long time, but we don't play together very regularly, so we didn't have much system, but it seemed to go okay anyway. And I picked up queen to seven spades, three low hearts and three low clubs. And the hand on my left opened a diamond and Andrew doubled and the next hand bid five diamonds. So I wasn't sure whether to bid five spades or not, but usually my philosophy is if in doubt bid, so I bid five spades and it went past six spades, pass, pass, double, all pass. And they led the ace of diamonds and Andrew put down ace king to four spades, opposite my queen to seven, three low hearts, opposite my three low. Yikes. Singleton diamond, opposite my void and five solid clubs. Oh, thank God. <laughs> So that was six spades double made. And in the other room, they bid up to six diamonds, which was cold because the spades were 2-0 and the clubs were 3-1. So we only had one trick against that. So we made slam in both rooms, which I don't think's ever happened before. What was the imps on that one? I mean, I think it's either 21 or 22. Wow, one hand. <laughs> yeah, so that was my favorite hand. It was a very instructive hand at another table too, because it was in an, at an event where the hands were played at many more than one table. And at one table, they were in six spades and the hand led the king of hearts and an expert defender with ace to three opposite the partner's king, queen to four on lead, didn't overtake with the ace and play one back, left their partner on lead and the partner's next move was to try and catch the ace of diamonds seeing the singleton dummy. The great moral there is if you can see that a contract's going to go down, don't leave it to partner. <laughs> Do <laughs> overtake the king of hearts with the ace and play one back. So that was a great hand. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So you said you were playing with Andrew Robson. I was then. Yeah, he's part of my team, my regular team, but we don't play together very often. Who is your regular partner? Well, I have a few. I play with Espen Eriksson in a lot of the global events. I played with Espen in, in America recently, and I play with him in some of the top British events. In the mixed events, I play with Mir de Shepper, who's on the Welsh ladies team, and I sometimes play with Paul Denning of Wales too. So they're, they're the three part people that I play with regularly. Thinking about one of your regular partners, what might they point to as one or two of your strengths at the table? I would say, I don't know what they would say, I'm sure they would agree. I think my strength is in bidding, certainly compared to the top players in the world. I can't hope to compete in card play, but I do on the whole manage to bid pretty well. And I'm quite aggressive, particularly in some positions and some vulnerabilities. Some of my preempts uh, get some laughter. <laughs> And what might they point to as an area they'd prefer you worked on a little harder? I think, well, I, I think 
What you tend to find is when you play in these long events the last nine or 10 days, it's the weaker part of your game that deteriorates as you get tireder. So I think I start off playing the hands okay, but after five or six days of any error, my game starts to suffer. It's my declarer play. So that's definitely the error I want to work more on. Could you describe one of your recent more laughable preempts? Well, I'm a bit sane in there than I used to be. So my bridge career basically had two halves. One, when I was at junior, I, but then I gave up for a long time and then he came back. And I'm a bit older now, maybe a little bit wise. But I once opened three diamonds on five low to find that the opponents were cold for seven diamonds. So that was probably the, the more famous one. Obviously, they struggled to bid seven diamonds after I opened three diamonds. So it was a success. But other times it isn't so successful. But that was probably the one that got the most comment from my team because the opponents were called for seven diamonds. Who was your partner in that game? I mean, I'm guessing because it was back in the day, it was probably John Hobson, who was a very, very fine player who doesn't play anymore. He's uh, got got a different career in the city. He gave up. No, similar to the time I, I gave up to uh, to pursue a career in the city. But unlike me, he's still going strong, whereas I came back into bridge uh, seven or eight years ago. I'd love to hear about your earliest memory of bridge. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned uh, uh, at home, effectively. My parents used to invite friends around to play bridge. And I was maybe 11 or 12, and I started watching them. And then because I was watching them and taking a real interest, they began to let me play when their friends came around. Then we had a, a few people at school who played. Um, my first probably serious partner was a guy called Steve Prowse at school. And we played together in things like this. The school was in North London, so they had a London Schools League. And they had the Daily Mail Schools tournament in the in the UK, which my school got to the final of. So I remember it was our first night away in, in London when we all went to this hotel to play. Then I remember playing with Steve in a, in a tournament in London and we did pretty well. So when I got to Cambridge, which is my university, I got straight into the Cambridge team and my British career really took off from there. Can I just take you right back to the very beginning when your parents had people around to play? Do you remember any details from those games? Anything you remember happening? Were you excited? Did it mean anything? Did you have something different for dinner that night? Because People were in a hurry to set up for the game, anything like that? I just remember being fascinated by it and wanting to watch. And I remember the Polish chap that my parents used to play with. He was a guy called Stan. He fought in the Polish resistance in, in the war. So he was a very, very interesting guy. The Second World War, that was. And I just remember being absolutely fascinated by it. And, uh, and my school friends, obviously, well, as soon as you have four people that are fascinated by it, you know, you spend half your life playing bridge, which is what happened to me. So do you have siblings? Yeah, my sister doesn't play, actually. It was just me. My sister was five years older than me, and by the time I was watching them, she was like 17, 18. So she, she's never learned to play bridge. So you were sitting watching them, and did they explain to you what was going on? Yeah, and then after a while, they began to let me play, and I play instead of them. And my mum still plays bridge, actually. My, my dad passed away, but my mum uh, still plays at Gwent Bridge Academy in Wales. My mum lives in Newport in Wales, and I've played with her a few times there. So we still play a bit. Oh, that's wonderful. So it's really a, been a family passion, maybe not your sister so much, but with your parents. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, a passion my mum and I have in common. When you were discussing being in school in London, was that like what we would know as high school or secondary school? It's called secondary school here, so it's kind of like 11 to 18. I probably first played bridge at school when I was 13 or 14. 
I think. I remember we went on a school trip to Switzerland when I was 14. I remember playing bridge there with some of the guys on the school trip. But the trip was not a bridge tournament trip. No, the trip was just a, a general walk around the Alps in the summer holiday. But some of my friends who played bridge were there, and I remember a bunch of us playing bridge on that holiday. So I was definitely playing bridge at school by the time I was 14. And were you then competing also in bridge, or when did you start doing the juniors? Yeah, the Daily Mail was probably the first thing I played in, which is the school's ch- championship, the first what you call proper tournament. And I think we, we got to the final of that. And then as soon as I got to Cambridge, I was playing in you know, the varsity match, which is the annual match between Cambridge and Oxford. And my partner at Cambridge was part of the junior British setup, so he got me involved in that. And then the thing that probably was most significant for me in Bridge and a bunch of other people, a lot of the people who I play in a team with now, we were all part of the same British junior squad in the 1980s. And Draymond Brock set that up and, and gave a tremendous amount of his time helping junior Bridge. And a lot of the top British players actually derived from that junior squad in the 80s. There are a lot of top players in that squad, and we all benefited from Raymond Brock's tutelage. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What do you love most about Bridge? Oh, everything. I think the variety. I mean, a lot of games, you play them for a while and you, you suss out the tactics and then you're either good or you're not, but there's not that much more to them. With bridge, you can practice all you like. You know, Espen and I practice for a few hours every week. You can have as complicated a system as you like. We've got a a 60-page system. But you still come up all the time against stuff that you haven't discussed, stuff that's new that you have to take a view on, and and, and that never ends in bridge. There are so many permutations. So I think it's the infinite variety of the game that keeps me fascinating for so long. 
and then obviously all the places you go, all the friends that you make through Bridge is amazing too. But the the variety of the game combined with its complexity is what makes it so compelling, I think. And yet you stepped away from it for a while. Yeah, well, I suppose two reasons. When I, I had a family, I had two kids. And secondly, I had you know, quite a serious career in the city. I was an investment manager, a hedge fund manager. And uh, the problem is that I use the, the same part of the brain as Bridge does. After you've been running a hedge fund all day, the last thing you want to do is go and play Bridge all evening, I think. So it made it took a back burner for a while, Bridge, although I still had friends who played and, and kept an interest that way. I didn't play much until I, I stepped down or started to step down from my fund in about 2014. And then I took up serious Bridge again. And there was no problem making that transition back again. Well, it was interesting trying to play again. I probably stopped playing in about 1992. After the junior stage, a team of us got together, a team of juniors, and, and were pretty successful for a few years. My first game again was probably online in 2012, apart from one summer when I had six months off when I played with my friend Peter Crouch in a couple of tournaments in 2002, just for fun. But that was like a brief interlude. That apart, I had 20 years out. And I did worry whether I'd be able to get back to the level I played at before. And probably, to be honest, for a few years, I didn't, of course. You know, I, I was doing okay. And it's been a lot of hard work. But I'm lucky with the people I get to play. And I've, I'm lucky to have so many friends who are really, really good bridge players. And, and uh, that's helped me get back to the level. I sort of feel now that I'm I'm probably, this last 12 or 18 months is the first time that I've probably reached or surpassed the level I was at before I gave up. It's been hard work, but also great fun. But that's so interesting because there are a few competing narratives about bridge skill and prowess. Some people say you're born with it. Some people say you can learn. Some people say, oh, you start. And if you've learned as a younger person, you can pick it up again. But, you know, the older you get that, you know, you're never going to be any good. But it seems from what you're saying that it's possible not only to maybe step away and come back and with some hard work, pick up from where you started, but also to improve maybe no matter where you are in your bridge career. Of course, not everybody is as naturally gifted and skilled as you are, and that goes without saying, though I've just said it. Well, that's not true. Of course, there are plenty of people that are as naturally gifted and skilled as I am, and many, many, or or, or more so, but that's not. There are a number of points. I suppose to, to start with, I reached a high level before I stopped and we won the, the Gold Cup in 88, my team. So I did get near to the, to, to certainly within British standards, not so much in global standards. The second time around, I've had a lot more time to commit to it. I haven't got competing. No, no, I, I don't work anymore. I, and, and my kids are growing up. So I'm able to take it more seriously. I've got more time to take it more seriously. I think I have taken it a lot more seriously this time in terms of trying to improve and get better. And I think in order to do well at anything, you need two things. It's all very well to have talent, but you need hard work too. I mean, what made, made Bjorn Borg the, the world's greatest tennis player, it wasn't just talent, it was incredible hard work. And I think that applies to all sports and games. And so clearly I'm lucky to have some talent at the game, not as much as some, but if you combine that talent with hard work and make the most of your talent, that's how you improve. Were there any aspects in particular that you found easy to get back versus other areas of the game that really required a lot more effort? Yeah, I think definitely. And I think it comes down to the point I was making a bit earlier about when you're playing these long tournaments, it's the weaker part of your games that deteriorate. So 
if you stop playing for a long time, it's the weaker part of your games that get rustier. So I, I, I didn't really have much of a problem getting my bidding back to a level where I could compete at a good level, but the card play took a bit longer. In terms of your laughable preamp, yeah. were you more aggressive as a junior than you are now? A tiny bit. I suppose what is definitely the case is that the average standard is more aggressive now than it was. That's something I really noticed. When we preempted this way, say, or open light in the late 80s, everyone thought we were mad. Now they just think we're aggressive. The way the game is played has definitely moved in that direction. Generally, people open lighter and preempt lighter and bid more than they did 30 years ago. So I guess my style hasn't changed that much. If anything, I'm a little bit more conservative than I was because I'm just a little bit older. But I've noticed that the general style has moved in that direction. So you know, a lot of the things I do now, certainly in terms of preempting, are less out of step than they were. But the, the other thing is that you, you play the game to have fun, right? And it's fun to preempt, I think. I mean, part of my style, I think it's, I, I think preempting works very well because I think good players left on their own generally bid to the right contract. But if they have to start at the three level, they struggle more. And also, I think it's good fun to preempt. So why wouldn't you? I agree. I think you were the trendsetter or perhaps the arms race initiator. <laughs> I think, no I, th- no, I wouldn't say that. There were a few people doing it. I remember the, the pair I used to look up two most in the UK were Graham Kirby and John Armstrong. John sadly passed away now, but they were a pair that were playing, doing at senior level what we were doing at junior level. They preempted very aggressively and did extremely well out of it. So I wouldn't say we, we set the trend, but we copied sequel that did. We had Steve Weinstein on recently, and he made a comment actually quoting Zia, who said to him, Steve, we want to get really hard hands because that will allow us to really distinguish ourselves, to differentiate ourselves and to do well. Have you had a hand lately that you found particularly difficult? Oh, God, yeah, every, every week. I think the great thing about bridge is that you get difficult hands every time you play. I mean, that's why we all love the game so much. Is there a mental tool that you employ deliberately when you're under pressure? or feeling stressed? Yeah. I think one of the bowls bridge tips, which I think is brilliant, is kill off any emotion when you're playing bridge. So whatever that emotion is, whether it's uh, elation, because you feel you're doing pretty well, and we've all sat down to play a 16-board set, and you think you're doing fantastically well over the eight boards, and you probably are, but by the time you've played the 16th board, you're behind. And so it's very important not to get elated when you're doing well. Equally very important not to get despair when you're playing badly, to get angry with your partner when they make a mistake, to get angry with yourself when you make a mistake. The tip just to kill off all emotion and play every card as it comes. And obviously it's a lot easier said than done, but it is, I think, a brilliant tip. And I try and remind myself of that at the table. Sometimes thinking about a hand quite deeply can look or feel a lot like an emotional response, maybe fear or some kind of reservation. Where is the line between analysis and emotion? Do you ever have to think your way through that? You have to be aware of it. Obviously, thinking is the game. So, uh, you know, nobody would suggest it's wrong to think, but it's what you're thinking about. If you're thinking about the cards in front of you, and the decision you have to make, that's great. If you're thinking about the last hand or thinking about whether you're going to win the match, 
then that's a negative thing. Another great quote from Bjorn Borg was to always play the next point, not the last one. Um, Bridge is very like that. You should always be playing the next hand, not the last one. So to your, to answer your question, what you should be thinking about is what's in front of you, not anything else. And it's it's the art to only think about that. How do you turn off emotion? It's one thing to have a, a tip, turn off your emotion, but how do you do it? Yeah, it's easier said than done. Yeah. It's experience and training, I guess. You have to train yourself to do it. I don't always do it. I mean, I, I, I try my best to do it, but I don't always do it. I've got better at it as I've got older, I think. And it, 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 it's basically just training yourself to realize, you know, just reminding yourself that after six boards, it doesn't matter how that whether you're doing well or badly because you still got ten to play. You know, if it's a, if it's a sixteen board match, and reminding yourself that if your partner's just made a mistake, well, you've probably made some too, and they haven't got angry with you when you made some, so you've got no right to get angry with them when you made some. <laughs> uh, remembering that your partner's your your friend at the table, and I think you just have to constantly be telling yourself this stuff. It's not, and, and a lot of it is training your mind. So, have you got better at it? I'm sure I've got better at it. I'm sure I'm not perfect by any means. I'm sure my partners would laugh if I said I was perfect at it. But I've certainly got better at it, yeah. Is there anything in particular that makes you nervous when playing bridge still to this day? It would be unusual not to feel some sort of butterflies if you're playing in a big event. So I'm usually pretty nervous before I start playing in a big event. And you know, I've played a lot, quite a few this year, actually, because it's been great to be able to travel again. And I don't usually feel nervous after I start playing anymore. Some of the big matches I've played this year, I've definitely felt nervous beforehand. And do you find yourself pacing your hotel room or do you have yeah, a door? Yeah, I do. I do pace. And I get to the venue 15 minutes beforehand and I pace around. I'm not very good at sitting still anyway. Do you have any other rituals or routines that you go through when you're at a tournament? Yeah, if I'm tired, I throw I splash water in my face before the start of play. Try and wake myself up. You in your face, not your partner's face. No, my partner's <laughs> face. <laughs> and I always try and go for a walk beforehand, if only for ten minutes, to actually get some fresh air before I start playing. Yeah, little rituals. No superstition. No, not so much. We we have a bear that we carry around the Welsh team, a Welsh bear in Welsh colours, and he always comes and plays. But that's no, it's more. It's not really a superstition. It's just more a habit. Do you have a favourite tournament that you really love to play? Yeah, my favourite tournament is definitely the Gold Cup, the the Open British Championships, because as as a team of juniors, we managed to win that in 1988, and I haven't won it since. So, so I, I, I lost in the semis this year. But it's probably the tournament that is dearest to my heart because we won it when when we were relatively young. But there are so many amazing tournaments out there, and uh, we're so lucky to travel playing bridge. I've literally played all over the world this year, and it's been amazing. And well, all the tournaments are great. The, the Gold Cup is probably the one that I want to win the most. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you've been playing bridge? Huh? Yeah. Uh, there was a very funny hand, and to the credit of the opponents, they thought it was funny as well in the European Championships this year when we, uh, we were playing a part score. can't remember, but it was three of something or other. Anyway, the guy on my right leads out a turn. So uh, the director comes, and he led a diamond, and the, uh, and the director explains to this guy, you can't lead a diamond, as Richard says you can't, and then you can't lead one when you get in next time until... So anyway, he didn't lead a diamond. He got in next time and he plonked the ace of diamonds on the table without even thinking. 
before the director come together and they both got diamonds on the table and it, it resulted in some ridiculous ending when this part score made. <laughs> and uh, obviously we thought it was funny. We benefited from it. But to the credit of the opponents, they thought it was very funny too. <laughs> but I've never had that before. Both defenders having a penalty card at the same time. Is there a book that has most helped your game or that you recommend to developing players? I do a fair bit of bridge reading. I suppose that there are so many books, a few, a few that come to mind that I think really help. The, the book of the Bowls Bridge Tips is brilliant. These were all the bridge articles that, 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 that were written and somebody's put into a book so you can buy them all in a single book and they were the, the, the tips of, of the top players at the time and, and so that's, that's invaluable. The Robwell Files is an incredible book on card play. I mean, it, it is the Bible of card play for me. Thinking of defense, there's a book that's a couple of chaps wrote, and it's, apologies if I get their names wrong, but it's Bairdsky and Kremian, and it's called Deadly Defense, and it's probably the best book I've read on sort of expert signals and, and, and the, the, the way that experts defend. I think that's a really brilliant book. Finally, I'd mentioned some books on opening leads that David Bird and Tafanthius wrote, I think, you know, a few years back, where they actually analyzed thousands of hands and what the right opening lead was and and uh, a lot of their conclusions are are very interesting and and many of which of them have been adopted to a lesser or, or greater or lesser extent by expert players now so i think that book changed the way that people led to an extent that seems like a pretty controversial book for some people yeah because the conditions i guess are not the same as the conditions at the table you have to be very careful of models i think and uh, certainly, I was an economist by trade, and you certainly have to be have to be very, very <laughs> sceptical of economics models and uh, bridge models. Therefore, no difference. So, I think I, the, the way I look at it, I look at the books, and I think that they, for me, their conclusions are right. But because of probably because of biases in the model, you should assume that they're overstated. I've read the books. I'm, I definitely moved my lead style in the directions of the book suggested, but probably not to the extent that the book suggested. But that's obviously just a personal opinion. I think they're great books. I think, I think the important thing is that they're, they're thought-provoking and they, they make you think about what you do. What's your best bridge memory? I've had so many great memories. You know, I mean, I, I, I've got loads of great memories from uh, when I played the first time around. Uh, I think... Winning the Gold Cup in 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 eighty eight is probably my best bridge memory. Just because we it was un, so unexpected that we'd win because we were such a young team. That that probably for me and and I remember the whole team, you know, celebrating for a few days afterwards and and and, uh, and uh, have great memories. We we were probably the youngest team ever to to win it, and I we got to the quarterfinals, and I just assumed we'd lose in the quarterfinals. So I bought myself a ticket to see Bruce Springsteen the day of the semifinals, uh, and we didn't lose, and I never... Well, I got to see Bruce Springsteen another time, but not then, but it was the happiest top concert I've ever missed, that's for sure. <laughs> and that's, uh, that weekend is definitely my, my, my best bridge memory. Oh, when did you get to see him? I've seen him three times live, so you don't need to feel sorry for me. <laughs> and he's one of the greats. Is there a hot-button issue in bridge that you are particularly passionate about? Oh, wow, yeah. 
cheating, obviously, but then I guess you get a lot of people talking about that. I suppose the one that I would like to highlight is just developing the junior game. I think bridge is an aging game, not in every country, but as a whole it is, and in the UK it is. And anything we can do to encourage young people to play the game, I think you know, I think we we shouldn't just assume that the game will survive unless we take steps to encourage participation amongst young people. So uh, I've started just recently with Mia and another Welsh chap, Mark Roderick, who's done a lot for Welsh Junior Bridge to to try and really encourage the the Welsh juniors and and, and bring them on. And I, I think we all have to, to to take steps to encourage Junior Bridge and to encourage young people who play the game. What would you like to see people doing to encourage juniors to play? Playing with them is one thing. I mean, I was very lucky with the effort Raymond Brock put into it our development and he he played some matches some nights with me and I think you know taking the time to play with the younger people if players if they want to play with you making bridge a fun environment I mean young people want to have fun as well as play bridge right and and, and bridge can be too strict and severe an environment sometimes around uh, you know the, certainly if you play in clubs it can it, it, it can be too serious and not enough fun and and, and everyone's taking every single step about you know you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that you shouldn't do the other which is great at top levels but it's not necessarily the same at the, uh, 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 the level where people are starting out you've got to make sure that people have a fun experience so every time we play against young people we just you just got to be mindful that actually you want them to come back next week and, and you want them to have a nice time playing do you have a favorite bridge convention or gadget that you really like to play with your partners? Yeah, I think in terms of what makes a big difference to the bidding, I think Five No Trump's Pick a Slam probably wasn't around as a convention or certainly widely used the first time around I was playing in the late 80s. Uh, and it, it's so important in slam bidding to be able to change course and suggest alternative suits and alternative contracts. And I think, and bear in mind how many imps are at stake every time you bid or a slam or bid the right slam or the wrong slam. I think that that convention has, and the development has made a real di- real difference to slam bidding. So what would be a sequence? Well, when you've agreed a suit and you've used Blackwood, but somebody's bid another suit previously in the auction, you bid five in to bring that suit back into the game. You know, you use it a lot. So I, when, when I bid with, you know, with Espen or Mir, we use it a lot. So it's definitely a really useful convention. Is there a convention that you really can't stand? I don't like Gazili. I don't <laughs> understand it. I play transfers. So after a major pass in Trump, I play transfers and it seems to work really well. And uh, I've seen people play Gazili against me. And all I can say is it doesn't seem to work that well. <laughs> I'm laughing because Jocelyn and I play it and we're always so excited when someone likes it. And so I was not expecting you to say that. But I'm sorry. <laughs> that's the problem whenever you criticize a convention you're bad to upset something for sure what's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given I think don't be afraid to upgrade or downgrade your hand you're always taught when you start playing bridge about points and counting your points and everything but points are only a guide they don't really tell you the whole story so I often downgrade four triple three hands by a point and I'd never open a 15, 17 no trump volatines with a 17 count and a decent five card suit. 
and and now if you've got a king then it goes up in value if the if the suit's been on your right and down in value and the suit's been on your left so some of this is fairly obvious stuff but i think every time you pick up a hand always ask yourself should you be upgrading it or downgrading it uh, and make sure you do both because it's it's easier to, to upgrade sometimes than downgrade but it's important to do both richard thank you so much for joining us today it's been such a pleasure talking to you thanks so much it's been really great having you on the show. Thank you very much. It's been really great to be on the show and I've really enjoyed talking about the game that we all love so much. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Richard Plackett. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. You'll get a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Richard says, don't be afraid to upgrade or downgrade your hand. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.